It's a pleasure to be with you guys today. Um, my last opportunity to preach at this place. It's pretty intense. Um, yeah, we've been here for nine years, um, which is the longest that I have consciously been at a church. Um, I grew up in church. I was born in a pew, um, and I enjoyed my time there, um, and I'm incredibly thankful for that. But uh, nine years we've been here, uh, particularly at GemQuest, and uh, it has been a journey and has been a privilege uh, to walk with many of you for most of that time. Uh, but we are thrilled that you are with us today. Uh, next week, Pastor Matt will be uh, bringing us the conclusion of Second Peter um, and our final time as this congregation in this place. So excited for that. Um, really excited for what the future has for us. Um, and I pray that our time in Second Peter has been fruitful for you, uh, has been helpful. And uh, we look forward to being a combined congregation and church uh, here in just a few weeks. So if you have your Bibles, please uh, open up to Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to be hightailing it through the middle of this book today. Um, we'll be going from chapter 1, verse 16, all the way through the end of chapter 2, verse 22. I hope that you have been able to follow along the past two weeks as we have really established the groundwork for uh, Peter's main correction this week. Uh, the first week we got to see the genuine article, specifically what it is that we truly should believe. We're all believing something. The question is, are we believing the genuine article? And last week we got to flesh out what that faith looks like and how it lasts and how we get to the end. And that's an important contrast because today, when we get to the end of chapter 2, we're going to see kind of the, the opposite of that, the, the warning. Now, what I enjoy about Peter um, is that he is typically rather brash and a little out of sorts compared to the fine writing style of Paul. Um, Peter's fisherman-ness, I think, shows through in a lot of his, his writing. Um, and in some cases, I feel like as we, de particularly as I'm trying to preach and develop this, this letter, that it feels like it's a little flipped. Um, I don't think that we've actually gotten to the full-on danger that he's getting ready to, to talk about yet, and we're, we're halfway through his letter. Um, we're going to get to like the argument of what these false teachers are making in chapter 3. Uh, so it feels like it's a little flipped, but here's what I do appreciate about Peter. Before he lays into these false teachers, before he gets after uh, the church in this letter, what he does is he establishes truth first. And, and I think for Peter, being the rock, right, for Peter to, to establish truth and to begin with himself and with the church first, I think is an incredibly humble move. And it's something that, that you see coming out of First Peter, the humility that Peter has developed over his time with Jesus. And so by being able to start with ourselves, I pray that over the past two weeks you have been able to work through this idea of the genuine articles. You have the true gospel of grace. Because today we're going to move into this different feel in an entirely different way. The title of today's sermon is Slaves of Corruption. It's not a black metal band out of, out of Norway. Um, it's nothing exciting like that. This is the end of all things that do not have the genuine article. Slaves of corruption. Let's begin with our text today in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 
uh, we see a transition statement, right? So everything that, that Peter has been developing so far lands here. He started by claiming the right authority by the fact that it's in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our King. All of that is at the beginning in verses 1 and 2. And then he lands his whole opening argument on verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father God, as we journey through your text today, uh, as we look at these warnings and as we reach back into the Old Testament to to watch how you have acted. Father, I pray that as we look and see what you have done, we will know you. In the same way that, that Peter begins this letter by saying that we need to be rooted in our knowledge, our relational epinosis, knowledge of who you are. Not just about you, but Father, that we can see who you are and know you truly by what you have done. And because of what you have done, we know that what you will do. Father, help us trust you. Help us see the word today. Father, as we talk about one of the primary dangers being our own deceiving of ourselves, Father, I pray that blindness would be lifted today. Father, we would have moments of clarity because of your spirit at work in our hearts. Father, illuminate the text for us and help us see who you are, what you have been, and who you will be. Father, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see today is that judgment is coming, thus saith the Lord. Judgment is coming, thus saith the Lord. One of the challenges in our culture, our time particularly, of understanding the text of Scripture is that we're not the original audience. Right, we recognize that this is definitely for us, but it does have an original context. Uh, who you are and what is going on in the world around you is a huge, huge, huge input into how you understand things that are written to you. For instance, this past week, uh, I got a note in the, in the mail and uh, a handwritten card. I don't know if you're aware of what those are. Um, you can do that handwritten card in the mail and I got it and I thought it was from a certain person or two because there are some people in my life that typically send handwritten cards to me uh, as, as encouragements. I've done it throughout my pastoral ministry, that type of thing. I'm like, oh, cool, that's, that's nice. And I open it up and the front of it says, hello, darling. And I'm like, these people need to proofread the cards that they're sending. It's like they've got just a bulk of them from Michael's and they just pull one out and fill out what they want to. It says, hello, darling. And I'm like, 
all right, I don't, I don't know what this is. And then I finally open it, and I see my wife's name at the bottom. Our anniversary was this past week, and she is in Vegas being trained as a sonographer for the Women's Center. Context matters. Uh, Hello, darling is absolutely appropriate from my wife. It is not from the other people that have a history of writing me cards. Context matters. And so when you get that letter, what's going on has to help make sense. And my anniversary and my wife being gone helps that make sense. For Peter, he's writing to a people where there is a clear context of what's going on. And in this context is the challenges of these false teachers. And we've not got to talk a lot about that yet because he's not addressed it by name. And then the challenge is, is for us to say, all right, what's going on? What, are they, what do they know that I don't know? How are they reading this? Because for us, where do you get judgment, Pastor? Why, why do you say judgment is coming? Let's say, Lord, what's going on here that, that would incline us to look for that? He's been setting up a contrast all along that we're getting ready to unpack the root of. But he's been setting up this contrast all along. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. What's the implication? Other people are. And what is it that they are giving? Cleverly devised myths. There's going to be another phrase that's similar to that in chapter 2, the idea of sneaking in, secretly bringing these things. And so what we begin to see is that there's something else going on here. There's something astray. All along it's been, this is what is real. This is what you need to trust. This is what you need to stand on. This is what faith at last looks like. But now we get this this kind of passive-aggressive thing coming out of Peter. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you what the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for us, we see that we stand on something and Peter is developing this letter. He is writing to them, claiming many things. And as far as we've already talked about when it comes to authority, it's his apostolic witness that we saw at the beginning. And he names it again here, very specifically in this glory aspect of who Jesus Christ is. Because he says that we were eyewitnesses of this majesty. Now for us, I don't think that that means as much as it should. Because I think in our culture at large, eyewitnesses don't matter much anymore. We're naturally distrustful of eyewitnesses. I was there. I saw it. I'm sure you did. Do you have a video of it? We have to have, we have, to have video proof. We, have to, we, have to, we can't just trust people when they say things anymore. Eyewitnesses don't really matter anymore. But then, even if we do have eyewitnesses, their testimony doesn't last. It doesn't have the punch that it should. It doesn't have a lasting effect. But for Peter, he roots much of what he is claiming in his eyewitness account. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, capitalized, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And why should it matter? Because his next verse says this, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. You should hear this. It's the kind of argument that says, here's my credentials. Here's every reason why you should listen to me. 
I have the degree. I have the experience. I have the time invested. I have the failures. I know what I'm talking about. You would do well to listen. And so we have this type of voice that's being set up that Peter's trying to claim, and it stands in opposition to something, and that is the false prophets. Judgment is coming, thus saith the Lord. Where's judgment? We're going to talk about that. The important part is the thus saith. Thus saith. The fact that God spoke matters. The fact that God spoke matters. Do you, we take it so for granted. Having the revealed word of God in a single form. But then that God spoke. You see, when God speaks, things happen. Things that were nothing become something. Out of nothing, He creates with just His Word. God has spoke, is Peter's emphasis. Not just the fact that I heard it, but He spoke. We were eyewitnesses to His majesty. Speaking on the mountain, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. But then hearing from above, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, God spoke. And it's not just man, even if he has the credentials, even if he's been there, it's still not his own word. It's the prophetic word. <coughs> Sorry. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. These words don't come from Peter, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have the prophetic word. So judgment is coming. We're going to develop that as we go. But as it is now, thus saith the Lord. What does the speaking of God do in your life? What does the speaking of God mean in your life? What are you going to do with this sermon today? Not as men moved by the will of man, but as the Spirit speaks, as I am carried along by the Holy Spirit, as we read the text. How does the Word of God, the fact that God spoke, change who you are and what you do? Because if it doesn't, you do not have the genuine article. The question of purity of the body stands upon the speaking of God. The question of if you have the good news or just the news stands upon the speaking of God. And it's the speaking of God that we stand on. It's the speaking of God that we walk by. It's the speaking of God that we're convicted by. It's the speaking of God that we're saved by. And so the speaking of God matters. Do you spend time in it through the week? Do you spend time listening to it? Do you take the opportunity that you've been afforded by grace to speak back? The beginning of chapter 1 Knowing the knowledge of God, relational knowledge, comes by speaking. He spoke, and we can speak back. But our culture has, has struggled with the idea of the fact that there can be different interpretations to Scripture, or there's different versions of Scripture, or it means what it means to you versus what it means what it means to me. It can all be the same. And every generation has had to face this same challenge from Peter to ours. One example that I came across in my study this week was this. In, in the 19th century, 
at a period when society's views on human freedom were challenging the nature of biblical authority beyond humanism, moving even further from that. In October 1855, Vincent Van Gogh, the gifted yet conflicted artist, finished an oil painting he titled Still Life with Bible, created with everything but his words. The painting features an open Bible sitting on a table. To the right of the Bible is a burned-out candle in its holder. In the foreground of the painting, Van Gogh positioned a small yellow book, the binding of which identified it as Emile Zola's The Joy of Life. David Helm is a pastor and author. He interprets the the scene this way. He says this, By placing a burned-out candle beside the Bible and by putting both in the background, Van Gogh is telling us that the time for walking through this world by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, which shines down upon God's Word, is past. Biblical authority no longer holds sway. People are guided by different, if not lesser, lights. That's what he's saying. Even the flaming color of yellow is now reserved for the cover of another book. Humanity's new pursuit is governed by whatever brings us the joy of life. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord has spoken. Yahweh has spoken. What will you do with it? Because there are others who will not use it the right way, who will not listen to it, who suppress, as Pastor Greg read earlier from Romans 1, suppress the truth. The second thing, justice has been and will be served. Justice has been and will be served. Verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This passage makes the shift. This is the new but. Before it has been for, for, therefore, because of this, for. Now it's but. Here's the full-on opposite. But false prophets also arose among the people. See, in verse 21, when he's talking about prophecy, he's specifically speaking to the, to the Torah. Specifically speaking to the, uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the Old Testament Bible, speaking of these prophets who did not just say what they wanted to, but were moved by the Spirit. And in contrast to those men, false prophets also arose among the people in the past and then future, just as there will be false teachers among you. So we have now finally the enemy in front of us. We finally see specifically what he is countering, what he's writing against. I would hope, he's hoping, that through chapter 1, the people that originally received this letter are going, this sounds different than what they're saying. This is not what I'm hearing on Sunday. This is not what those teachers, pastors are, are saying. For us, it just now finally becomes apparent, but for them, hopefully they have seen that all along. My hope for you is that if you believe something other than the true gospel, you have seen that in contrast the past two weeks. But today we see the enemy. And this challenge to us 
is, is still present. He says, just as there will be today. And one of the frustrations with this is that we think that we can identify false teachers, and we think we can identify them well. Certain channels on TV, certain churches, certain denominations, we want to throw into the camp of false teachers. And it's even frustrating, too, because if they are false teachers, they're supposed to experience destruction. I mean, the passage says, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, but it doesn't look like they are. It doesn't look like they are. They seem to be successful. People are listening to them. They have all that they could want. And one of the primary... (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) One of the primary motives of these particular false preachers are the, is the accumulation of material wealth, specifically uh, of money, but also then wrapped up with sexual sin. And in these two things, you see them really flourishing in our modern time. They're not uh, appearing to have swift destruction. Here's the challenge today. When we talk about judgment and justice When we talk about destruction, particularly in this chapter, as we develop this, we need to have a biblical idea of what that means. You see, when I want to see swift destruction brought in on these people, I want them to be ruined. I want them to to have to to lament publicly of their, their false teaching. I want to see them broken. That, to me, is what destruction is. I think for many of you, we, we share that, that theme when it comes to judgment and destruction. But could it be, and I would argue that it is, that their success in what they are doing is judgment itself? The fact that they are getting the crowds, the fact that they are getting the money, the fact that they are getting the fame, the fact that they are getting a life of ease. All of these things which we would mark as success in our culture are actually the judgment of God present now. Hang on to that. We're going to keep developing that one. Verse 2 says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It may appear that they're not being judged, but they are. It's swift. And it is coming, which we'll hit in verse 4. But first, I want you to see how they bring it. Because it would be really easy to skip over this. Because it's not just the big false teachers and preachers. It happens here. How do they do this? How do you, how do you be on guard for false teaching? The tactic of these false teachers is to introduce their erroneous doctrine by stealth. Not in fashion, not in big words, but by stealth, secretly. These verses have to be a sobering reminder to us of Satan's schemes. Back in 1 Peter, Peter previously charged us to be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Did you see him this morning? Stalking around? Was he looming in the shadows this past week when you were angry or annoyed? 
Are you aware of him? You see, false teaching doesn't just come from others. It comes from our own hearts. Our own hearts are deceitful. And we have an accuser who stands against us to make his case. We have a roaring lion stalking around. And the problem is, is I think that we lack an appropriate fear of the enemy. Yes, perfect love casts out fear. Be alert. Be alert. He's going to tag this challenge at the end of chapter 2. Be alert. It's dangerous. You should have an appropriate fear of the enemy. Almost 10 years ago exactly, I was in Costa Rica on a mission trip with my former church before we planted here. And we were working at an orphanage, uh, building uh, a playground for them and helping fill out their care center. We were able to take many of them to a local zoo, which is really cool. Uh, And we're walking through that, and there's a picture on my Facebook. You can still find it. It was my profile picture for a while, years ago, before I had my own kids. Um, uh, uh, This little boy that was just my best bud the whole week, Uh, partly because at the time I was the largest person in Costa Rica. Um, And uh, that happens almost anywhere that I go, me and Brian. And uh, it was exciting when you do international travel. Uh, He's riding on my shoulders (laughs) for an hour and a half, all right? Riding on my shoulders. We're walking through and we see all these animals. And finally we come up to the lion's den, right? I think this is pretty cool. I haven't seen a lion in, in person in my adult life uh, up until this point because I was only two years into being an adult. Uh, really, really cool. Looking at it from a distance, I see it. And then finally our group migrates over and stands just about from like here to like halfway in between around Michael. Uh, you don't have to, he's not the lion. He's distance. Uh, Right there, okay? His little boy is on here. And the lion's just walking, and we're like, oh, this is cool, this is cool, taking pictures, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, he turns to us, and he roars like a lion, or like, like Mufasa style, right? Just, bah! And my neck gets really warm. <laughs> All of a sudden, it just gets really, really warm, right? Now, praise God, little guy was wearing a diaper, Still warm, right? <laughs> That's an appropriate fear of what's going on. That animal, I may be standing taller than, but it is a fierce weapon of mass destruction. That's an appropriate fear. Do you recognize that that's on the loose? Because I would have matched my little guy if he wasn't behind bars. That's an appropriate fear. That is what is after you. Not just to scare you, but to destroy you, to devour. And so when we think about false teaching, it's not, ah, ha, ha, those, those prosperity gospel guys. Ah, ha, ha, uh, those people that, that have just, you know, this little heresy. It's destructive. It is damning. It will devour us, and it is sneaky. It's easy when it's big and obvious. But can you see it in your own heart when it's you? For a believer, the primary defense is a working knowledge 
working, use it, put it to use, a working knowledge of and unwavering obedience to the authoritative word of the apostles and prophets recorded in the scriptures. God spoke. If you want to defend yourself, you have to have a working knowledge of it. That's what Jesus did when he was being tempted by the lion. A working knowledge of the scriptures and a perfect obedience to the authoritative word of his father. So, why is it dangerous? Well, because justice is is at stake. Justice is at stake. The reason that we want to see destruction brought on these people is because we recognize that what they're doing is unjust. Not only is it just simply wrong as far as truth is concerned, but it's unjust. They are taking things from people. They're bringing them to ruin, and ultimately they are going to bring them to destruction. And so justice is at stake. And so what does Peter do? Because Peter is not without encouragement. He begins with that. He was full of that all the way through his first letter. And so what does Peter do? He reaches into the Old Testament, and he shows us who God is. He's reaching into the revealed word of God from the prophets and showing us who God is. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Ah, here, here it comes out. It's named absolutely explicitly in chapter 3, but here it comes out. Until the day of judgment, end of verse 9. The false teachers are saying that God will not judge. He will not judge. And it could be one of two reasons. It could be the fact that God is good, and so that he will not judge us, Or it could be because he's going to judge us all equally. We're all going to get the same conclusion. And so, in either case, it doesn't matter. He's not going to judge us, or we can't do anything about the judgment. And so, we might as well live as if there is no judgment. If there were no judgment, would you live differently? Yeah, probably. But what Peter does is show us that there is judgment. There there very, very is judgment. (laughs) God's pattern is judgment and preservation. There's a biblical theology is, is what does the whole Bible have to say about a specific thing in general, right? We're aware of that. We've talked about systematic theology. What does the whole Bible have to say about a specific thing for today? 
application-oriented. Biblical theology is what does the whole Bible have to say about a specific topic. We would say, argue in most cases, that the, the, the theme of Scripture in general, the, the root bedrock on which you do biblical theology, is covenant, right? From the creation covenant to the Adamic covenant to the Noahic covenant to the, you just keep on going through, Davidic, New Covenant, all the way through. It's covenant. Covenant undergirds everything. There's another author uh, that we greatly respect that has a different take on it. He says that the undergirding principle is judgment. Judgment. And he makes some very convincing arguments. I don't know that it is the ground, right? It's probably the, like the grass on top of the bedrock. Uh, but judgment. And judgment matters here because we see it through Scripture, and Peter appeals to this type of background. We would argue that it's rooted in covenant, that he judges, but he's appealing to judgment here. God did not spare the angels when they sinned, Genesis 6-ish. Did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. Why? To be kept until the judgment. They're being held for judgment. Judgment's coming. He did not spare the ancient world. Right? Now, we have a, now we have a contrast. But preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. He turned the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to judgment. He preserved righteous Lot. And as we see these developments, it's important for the, us to see what he's appealing to. God spoke and God acts. His speaking is his doing. He means what he says. For them, Peter's appealing to these angels. Then he appeals to the world being washed by flood. Then to these two cities being made into extinction by the fire that burned there. But through it all, he preserved his people. He preserves Noah and seven others. He preserves Lot and wipes out two cities. You see, when we hear false teaching, when we hear false prophets, when we hear false messages, false gospels, they come in mass. And it's easy to be overwhelmed by them by pressure from culture, from politics, to whatever. But there's always a remnant. It's not big numbers, it's Noah and seven others against the world. You see, there's going to be a separating of the sheep and the goats in the future. And the goats may be a lot more, but they're not sheep. You need to know which one you are. When we look through this defense, this, this passage, we see who God is because he's been faithful. You can trust that he's going to give justice because he has been all along. And if he has been all along, and Peter tells us that he's doing it now, it's, it's swift, then we can start to see how some of these other things that they get that look like success are actually judgment. You know, for us, we look at this, and this is extreme. We're not, we're not dealing with the angels. We're not being threatened by flood right now. We don't, we don't have this, this condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah coming upon us. And then particularly in America, we are not under pressure for our faith hardly at all. There are certainly coming more opportunities to make stands based on our 
faith, but we are, for the most of us, not in danger of being martyred. Our jobs might be, but not ourselves. Our social status might be, but not ourselves. But the danger, I think, that we can pull from here is in verse 7 and 8. The biggest danger for us, primarily, I think, as believers, is having our faith dulled by exposure to wickedness. He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as he lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Remember the story, righteous Lot is like righteous, (laughs) right? Air quotes, podcast people. Righteous. And he's not really totally lamenting what's going on, right? He's against it. Uh, but to, but he's going to send out his daughter, right? Um, but he's against it. And so Peter's kind of pumping him up here a little bit. That should be encouraging because most of us are righteous. We're not <laughs> the front end of what righteousness looks like. And God still preserves him. And his family, if it weren't for his wife's sake, preserves him, Right? The challenge for us is that we are becoming like Lot, more and more and more blunted to the sin of the culture. From what we watch on TV that wouldn't even be in movies years ago, to what we just expose ourselves to. This isn't a pull out from the world type thing. This is a make wise decisions about your entertainment thing. Recognize that your soul is at stake. Not just in what you believe, but in the way that you live every day. Because this judgment is real. It is swift. And one of the challenges against the realness is that people say things like this from one author. How can Christians possibly project the deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God. And these are just merely representative of the widespread rejection, both inside and outside the community of faith of this, the doctrine of God's wrath. The doctrine of God's wrath. What do you know about the doctrine of God's wrath? It's an important question. This is part of the other word of knowledge of the scriptures. What do you know about the doctrine of God's wrath? Why does that matter? Why does it matter in this text when we're talking about justice? When people come up to you at work and say, I just can't believe that God's a God of love, right? I mean, sure covenant, sure judgment, but love. God is a God of love. How can he possibly send people to hell? How can he possibly allow evil to be here? How can he allow these these natural disasters to happen, these shootings to happen? If he's a God of love, how can these things be? In our immediate culture, nine miles that way is rooted in this question. What do you know about the doctrine of God's wrath? You see, like it or not, God's condemnation is real and necessary because it's rooted in his justice. God's justice demands that he will not let us off the hook. He will not leave the guilty unpunished, Exodus 34, 7. 
but will give the right, uh, unrighteous rather exactly what they deserve. Leviticus 26, 27. And as the righteous judge, he will one day call every creature to account. You see, our culture wants justice. We want justice in every single form and fashion. But we cannot have justice divorced from wrath. We cannot have true justice without wrath. I want justice. Racial justice. Criminal justice. Justice to to the unborn. Justice for women. I want all of that. But it comes with wrath. It comes with wrath. You see, our culture wants justice, but we don't want wrath. If we want justice, then what would be just is for us to get the wrath. The most offended party in every case, the the biggest injustice ever committed, was what man did to God. Not just at the cross, but all the way back to the garden. And so the challenge for us is if we want to be a people of justice, we need to recognize wrath is real. But then because we are gospel people, we recognize that for Christians, Jesus Christ has incurred God's wrath against sin and met his righteous requirement in our stead. When we remember God's justice, we remember his gospel. It's a different definition than what our culture says. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for vindication. They're looking for justice for themselves. The problem is, is that God is the most offended party and he gets to make first claim because he's holy and he has wrath against sin. Now the great encouragement here for Peter is that God has been giving justice and he will continue to give justice because we can trust it on the cross. As his redeemed people, we can find comfort and encouragement in his justice. Justice that not only assures us that he's executing a plan for punishing the wicked, but also gives us strong help in our struggle for Christ-like, or as chapter 1 said, godly living in a secular world. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. He's given us everything that we need for a life of godly living, right? Next thing I want you to see is that depravity is consuming. Depravity is consuming. <clears throat> Second part of verse 10, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling 
and their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Depravity is consuming. It, it, it is consuming. Theologians term this idea total depravity. Man is not as bad as he could be, that would be utter depravity, but man can do nothing good apart from the grace of God. Man can do nothing good. Even the greatest philanthropist is serving himself if he gives all of his money away for the sake of himself apart from the grace of God. It is evil. It is an evil act that God can use for good, but it is an evil act. And so we recognize that all man is depraved. It comes from the garden. That's the point of the fall. But the way that Peter speaks about these people is closer to the utter part of depravity than just the total. Recognize the audacity that these people have to pronounce judgment upon angels. That's something that we will do in glory after we are higher than the angels, but as it is, we are not. And they have the audacity to do that. They are irrational animals, creatures of instinct. They revel in their wrongdoing. They are blots and blemishes. It says this, reveling in their deceptions even while they feast with you. Feasting is not just eating and enjoying. That's the Lord's table, communion. They revel in deceiving you even when you share of the cup and the bread. It's just hard to see it much worse. And what's challenging about this is that his people, Peter's people here, the righteous didn't see it this way. Can you imagine being in this context and not seeing it? Paul had a similar instance in 1st or 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 it is in either one are you saying that you tolerate things in the body that not even the pagans do what are you doing the problem here is that we're not good we're not mostly good we're not good people we are depraved people and justice is reserved for a holy God against depraved people. Wrath is for depraved people. And I think what we see here, and what Peter is helping us see, is that as they lean into this, it becomes more consuming. As they lean into these things, 
it overtakes them. You see, by large account, the depravity of man is held at bay by the common grace of God. Even those that are not believers are held at bay from their sin in its fullest form by the common grace of God. But as we lean into this, we become more and more consumed. And the danger is that we don't see it around us, and we certainly don't see it within us. And that leads us to where I really wanted to get today. Verse 19, our last point, bondage is forever. The bondage is forever. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. I've been stewing in this verse for about two months now. When I was on vacation, um, I didn't think we were going through Second Peter, so I just wanted to read through it and study it myself. And I got to hear when I'm sitting in paradise, a.k.a. Canada, um, and uh, enjoying coffee on a breeze while y'all were sweating in 98 degree weather. And I got here and it just, it just stuck with me and has. And I think that this is, this is the key here. Verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That almost sounds like a poster that belongs in a locker room, right? With one of the, don't be overcome, you don't, right? You can, you can rise against... But it's so dangerous because we, we encounter difficulty and, one, think that we can handle it because we're prideful and arrogant, just like these people. But then we come across these things and think that it won't affect us. That it can be just kind of handled. And, and what happens is that we're promised freedom. And we think that we have it. We think that we'll get it. We think that we'll arrive, we'll get the thing that's finally promised. I believe her name's Hannah Anderson, I think, in uh, the book Humble Roots is talking about this in a different form. But she's talking about tomatoes, and she <laughs> describes how the, just the process of growing good tomatoes, from having to start early and planting seeds to letting them sprout to then hardening them so that they don't die when you plant them. You take them out in the morning and bring them back inside every night for two weeks. And you plant them, you hope that they grow, you defend them against squirrels, um, against disease, and hopefully at the end of the season you get this amazing red tomato. Sun ripened, beautiful, and tasty. But then she says this, somehow standing in the grocery store though in mid-October, I forget all this. I forget that the small red fruit, she talks about how it's a fruit, neatly arranged in towers or packaged in plastic shells are not really tomatoes at all, at least how I know tomatoes. I forget that these are imposters, bred for long truck rides and perfectly formed shoulders and then gassed to turn their skins red. I forget the difference between what is real and what is fake, and as a result, I reap disappointment, a meaty, mealy, flavorless mouthful of regret. Reasonably fresh tomatoes have all but disappeared, journalist Thomas Whiteside noted as early as 1977. And their place is something that is called a tomato, that has the shape of a tomato and a tinge of the color of a tomato, and that sells at fancy tomato prices. But serious doubts have been raised about whether it tastes like a tomato. I think we've all been in this case. You know what a real tomato tastes like. All it needs is a pinch of salt and a fork, and you're good to go, right? 
Do that at the grocery store and you will regret your decision very quickly. You might have to use all the salt in order to taste something. But it's not uncommon for us to be promised something thinking that it's going to deliver and to get a mouthful of regret. And it's easy for us as believers to become so busy pointing fingers at the evils of a corrupted culture that we fail to see slavery to sin in our own lives and churches. It's easy to rebuke the world for things like gay marriage and transgender accommodation and yet avoid calling into account Christians who are guilty of things like pornography, anger, and materialism. You think about how we think about idolatry here in the four G's. For those of you that that are in the, the power idol camp, you are what promised success and influence and winning. But what happens is that the people around you feel used. And you're left not with success and influence and winning, but anger and frustration. You're promised freedom, but you become a slave to this. You serve the power idol. You don't get to be the powerful one. For approval idols, you're promised affirmation and love and relationships with the people around you feel crushed and smothered. And you don't get affirmation or love or relationships that are trustworthy and rich. Instead, you live in cowardice and fear of others. Those like like me, those of you like me, the comfort, we are promised privacy and a lack of stress and freedom. <laughs> freedom to do what we want, to, to enjoy life and good things, and other people don't do that with us. They feel neglected. And I'm left to just feeling bored. Everything that I'm interested in is not enough. And so why do anything at all and be lazy? For those of you that are control, you're promised self-discipline and certainty and standards. But the people around you don't see you as the great one. They feel condemned by you. And you're not given discipline. It falls apart. Your certainty, that which you want to make sure will last, just gives way to worry and anxiety. And you become a slave to trying to control everything. It doesn't matter if it's food, pornography, masturbation, lust, anger, gossip, jealousy, division, alcohol. All of these things promise something good. It promises freedom. And what happens? It leads to death. A mealy, flavorless mouthful of regret. How do you think that first fruit tasted to Adam? We know how it tasted to Eve. She passed it on. How do you think it tasted to both of them? Here's the danger, brothers and sisters. You're promised freedom every time. You're promised something that it cannot deliver. And what happens is that when we are overcome by that, we are enslaved. We are in bondage to it. 
And this is the pattern of the garden. This is the pattern of the garden. You have people like Clark Pinnock who wants to say something against God's definition of hell and say, how can Christians possibly do that? Surely a God who would do such a thing. Surely God didn't really mean. Surely he won't really kick you out. Surely it can't be that bad. You'll be like him if you do this. You'll have everything that you want. You promised freedom and you're left with death. And in every case, we're promised freedom and left with death, regret. It's not worth it. So Peter is pleading with his people here, saying, recognize what you stand against. Recognize that judgment is coming. It's promised. It will come because it has been. It's here now and it will come. Don't give yourself to these things. Don't be like them. Live in the truth of the genuine article. Because in verse 20 he goes on, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge, epinosis, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, then the last Satan has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. See, the fate of those who are given over as slaves to corruption, who are overcome and enslaved, is that they will see judgment. It should stand as a warning to us, for those of us that waver under extra-biblical teaching, or against the falsehoods of our own heart. That those who commit apostasy, who walk away, are very unlikely to return to the truth. And so this decision is of great consequence. And those who are wavering, unstable, must see that heaven and hell are at stake. And that's what's at stake for your own heart, and that's what's at stake for your own family and for the people that you work with. If God has spoken and judgment is real, then what are you doing about it? What? What are you rooted in? What are you after? What are you about? What are you trusting? This passage isn't as exciting as I would like to land. (laughs) Judgment's real, man. It is. And for us, we've seen it. We know it. And we've experienced it in our own life. It may look like they have all the success, but that money that they have is judgment. It may look like you have success, church, but that money could be judgment in your life. It may look like your family is everything that you want it to be, but that could be judgment on you. Peter, Paul, Jesus, tell us what we need to be about. And if we and our families are not about that, then the good things that we have are likely judgment. 
Recognize that that bondage is enslaving and it's forever. In our Christian culture, we have in recent days seen many high-profile pastors and such fall away from the faith, renouncing it. In every case, they've not been able to renounce Jesus. You know why? Because they never knew him. They never actually knew him. They renounced the church. They renounced the Bible. They renounced their faith. They renounced all these things except Jesus because they never knew him. So they cannot renounce him. Church, you need to know Jesus. You need to know the real, genuine article. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word and the warning it is. And Father, as we get ready to celebrate communion, we stand as a church that's not condemned. We stand as a church that's not under wrath. My Father, that's a great reason to celebrate. Father, let us not be deceived. Father, let us be about the ministry of the word to each other. Not just loving each other, but speaking love to each other. Father, let us speak the words of life to each other, challenging each other to these things. Father, to look for these promises that sin makes us that always end in death. Father, I would pray that you would preserve us from tasting death because you have given us life. But Father, if we are blind to those things, Father, let us taste death, if only for a moment, that we might see that it will destroy us. It's not worth it. Father, we want to live holy lives that are pleasing to you. And if we have to taste death for a moment to see it, Father, let it be so. Father, we thank you for your preserving of us. We thank you that you've given us everything that we need for a life of godly living. I pray that we would know it. As Peter encourages us, I pray that we would know it. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.